and here's what happened. Okay, I was going to Colossians, and, uh, but the Spirit of God li- literally just pulled me back continually all week long to John chapter 20. And so I finally just decided to sit down one morning and take a couple hours and just listen. And uh, because uh, anytime, you know, if you were here for Easter Sunday, you know that I talked about in John chapter 20, beginning verse 23, that we have a statement in that text that is a probably one of those profound propositions of of our faith in terms of a if you want to say a a doctrine of what what it really means to be a Christian but it's also a very personal statement because of the way Thomas says it when he says it he says my Lord and my God he makes it very personal and the interaction with Christ is very personal. And so I found that the Spirit of God was getting personal with me uh, through the week. And so uh, since I camped out there, guess where we're going this morning? We're going back there, okay? So, so now the first time I ever saw these circles was uh, as a college student. I'm a sophomore. I'm walking into the, the student center. And uh, back in that day, when I was a sophomore, you had to wait in long lines to register for your classes. None of that online stuff with putting in your little password, and, you know, and picking out your class. I mean, we stood in those long lines, and I'd been standing all morning long, and in the hot, you know, in the hot sun that, you know, that's that, uh, you know, late August, and got in my classes, and I'm walking over to the student center to get a Coke, and as I'm walking in, there's this table, and it's some students from the Campus Crusade for Christ, and this cute blonde, and that's, that's always a way to get my attention when I was a college kid. This cute blonde says, hey, sir, young man, would you take a religious survey this morning? Well, sure. So we sit down at a table, and we're joined by, a, unfortunately, by a young man. I was kind of hoping it would be just kind of one-on-one dialogue, you know. And, um, and so we start, they start asking me some questions. And, of course, I tell them that, you know, well, I grew up in the church, so I'm a Christian. And so then they introduced me after a few minutes, they introduced me to these three circles. You know, they essentially say, you know, there's three kinds of people out there. Okay? And the first kind of person, and maybe some of you have seen this, in the, in, if you were ever involved in Campus Crusade, okay, there's this circle. And that represents your life. And this is all the stuff going on in your life. You see? And so the first circle represents what you could call the pre-Christian. It's the natural man. Jesus Christ is not in the life, and so we're going to draw a cross down here. You know, Jesus is outside the life, and so the life has a tendency to be somewhat tangled, you know, somewhat frustrating, somewhat chaotic. But in the middle of the life, you see, there's this throne, see? And in the pre-Christian state, it's the self that's on the throne. So they make this big S. Are you following me? So if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, essentially the message is Christ is outside the life, and you are in control. You're making all the decisions. You're giving all the directions. I mean, you know, and basically... You know, you think it revolves around you, even though it's pretty chaotic and it's pretty messy and, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then they move from that circle in their presentation to the next circle, okay? And, and, and in this one, okay, I'm going to do a little drawing here. You'll... They show a little sense of, of order. 
And this circle they call, this is the spiritual man. This is the, the spiritual Christian, you see. And on the, on the throne of his life, because now Christ has been brought into the life in the Christian. So now Christ in the spiritual man sits on the throne of the life. And the self is over here somewhere. Do you follow? And, the, and because, the, because Christ is in the center, because Christ is the Lord, and, in, and Christ has been given control, and the decisions that are being made are, are being run through him, and we're attentive and listening to what he says in his word, then, you see, he's, when Christ is kept in the center of the life and on the throne, and the self is set aside, you know, like, like Luke 9.23, you deny the self— and take up your cross and follow. Then you, you begin to have a sense that there's some meaning, there's purpose, there's some order, and things are becoming less and less frustrating. Got it? But there's a third circle. Yeah, that, that's the spiritual man. The third circle, they, they call it the, the worldly. Christian, a worldly Christian. You see, the worldly Christian, Christ is in the life, but he's not in the center. Christ is in the life, but the self remains in the center, on the throne. The self is continuing to make decisions. The self is continuing to have to be in control. And make, the self makes it about me. And, you know, I'm saying, and so, so there, you know, so, you know, so here I am. I'm a sophomore in college, and I'm seeing this. I saw this for the first time. And, and, they're, and, and they get to the end of this presentation, and you know what's coming. They say, so now just point to the circle that best represents you. I lied. I pointed at the middle one. Because after all, I, I want to look like I got it all together, <laughs> you know, and, and I knew all the right things to say. I mean, after all, I've been around, you know, Christianity, and I went to, you know, was taken to church when I was little, and so I, I had, I knew, that I knew the right answer. I knew the answer that would get me out of there the quickest was the center one. But my, my life didn't look at all like that. There, there wasn't purpose. There wasn't some clarity. There weren't priorities. There, you know, there, there, was, there was chaos. And, and I guess the benefit of that conversation was that I felt bad when I walked out that I lied. Because it worked on me. That was my introduction to this concept of that Christ wants to be Lord and in the center of life. And for some reason, in spite of the fact that I'm about 19 years of age and I had been taken to church, I didn't get it. John... Chapter 20, verse 23. We're going to read it again. And I want to make a few observations when we come to the end here. 
I want to do a little word study with you because I want you to understand what the word Lord means, what's the word kurios means, okay? And then I want to kind of talk to you personally a little bit. I want to share a little with you about, you know, about how God brought that and made that reality for me as a college student. And that was years ago, but he's still working it, okay? Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him. Now here's the the great proposition. My Lord And my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. My Lord and my God. Now, I said last week, and I meant it, owning that statement is what it means to be a Christian. Owning that statement is what it means to be a Christian. To understand the cross as the redemptive and complete and and full act of God for your redemption. You know, so that Christ is Savior. And to understand the, the meaning of the resurrection. That he is raised by God back to life in victory. And he is proclaimed as Lord to, you know, to profess and to own that statement that he is Lord and God. What it means to be a Christian. You see, I grew up in a, uh, in a, uh, in a church where there was this kind of um, fallacy go- that went around. Uh, they, they, they were mixed up, and they mixed up a lot of people. And there's a lot of people that are mixed up today. Because there is a there is sort of this uh, um, this two phase kind of Christian experience that's talked about that you know that you get Christianity in two phases. One is you know you you first accept him as Savior and then you get to know him as Savior and then sometime later, sometime later once you've kind of been discipled, then you'll come to know him as Lord. And then you'll make him boss of your life. You following me? And so it's, it's like happens in two phases, okay? 
And so the first thing is, you know, we, and so we soften down the message a little bit, you know, because we want everybody to come to Jesus. And so we, we, you know, so we put the emphasis on Jesus as the Savior. And if we, if we can just get them to accept Jesus as Savior, that's phase one. And then later we'll get them to phase two to understand that Jesus is Lord. Are you following me? That's not what was preached in the New Testament. After Peter heard what Thomas said here, this was the climactic point of the gospel. From that moment on, when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts, he is Lord. He is curious, Lord. And, and when Peter stands up to preach the very first sermon, he preaches about the cross and the resurrection. And after he mentions the resurrection, he says, God has proclaimed him and made him both Lord and Christ. And what happened? The Spirit of God got a hold of those people. And they professed him Lord and Christ. And the church was going. See, now here's the danger. If you have sort of a two-phase or two-stage approach to the gospel, here's what happens. You get churches full of people who had some kind of experience with Jesus at one point in their life, and they know Jesus is Savior, but He's not their Lord. But they, you know, but saying, but they've got a fire insurance policy. Am I right? They show up at Easter. <laughs> you know, they kind of bow just a little bit, you know, because it's the thing you do. But they know in their heart who's really on the throne of their life. I mean, they know who's really in charge and who's in control. But we, you know what I'm saying? But as long as I've got this, you know, like, you know, back when I was a little kid, I got this, you know, I, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Now, the reality is the way you become a Christian, and, and even when, you know, when I'm talking to a a young person, you know, and, and I've had that privilege of being in homes and talking with, you know, with, with children, with eight and nine-year-olds. I mean, what I emphasize to them is essentially this. I say, listen, what it means to be a Christian is that you give everything you know about yourself to everything you know about Jesus. Because he becomes your Savior and your Lord. And you don't, you will not fully comprehend that at eight or nine years old. But, you know what I'm saying, but, but that's the experience, is that you've, what you've come to know about him through his cross and his resurrection is that I am willing to give over everything I know about myself and, and, and trust and entrust it completely and totally to everything right now I know about God, even understanding that I'm going to know more later. I'm saying, so when you come to faith in Christ, you come to him as Savior and as Lord. It's not two phases. Okay, now the battle is, the battle is because, because when you come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God comes and indwells the believer, and the Spirit of God begins to take, to make war with what? With the flesh. With the flesh. With the self-centeredness, with the self-orientation, with, you know, with the self-in-control. And so this thing of lordship, the lordship of Christ, we begin when we profess him as 
Savior and Lord as, as my Lord and my God like Thomas. And we're going to have to reaffirm that every day. That's going to be put to a test every day. Right? The word curios. The word curios. For Lord. There, there really were... Um, well, brick paper. There were three words in, in the Greek for the, for, the, for the word Lord that would translate as Lord, okay? Um, and uh, one of them is, uh, you know, they're, they're all kind of interesting words. One of them is, is a, a megastan, uh, and it comes from the root uh, megas, and we still use that word. We talk about the mega church, don't we? It's, and megastan is a word for Lord, and it communicates the idea of a great one, one who's a chief. Uh, someone who is of noble, noble birth, someone who is greater than other men. So when we use the term mega church, what is the mega church saying? We're greater, we're bigger and better. And, okay, you get it, right? By the way, you're not in a mega church. Okay. Okay. There's the other word, it's called uh, despotes. Despotes, does that sound familiar? We get the word despot from that. Now, in our language, that has sort of a negative connotation, doesn't it? That kind of reminds you of people like Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, right? Those kind of people, you know, you, you wish that Kim Jong-il had let, you know, Kim Jong-un go out and buy the motorcycle at 17 so he wouldn't have to have such risky behavior now as the, uh, you know, as the despot, the dictator of North Korea. You know what I'm saying? But that's, that's one of the words. But the word that's most often found in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is the word Lord Kyrios. In the Greek New Testament, it's found 720 times. And, but you need to understand a little bit about what it means. The word Kyrios or Lord, you know, um, that means rule or authority. Someone who is Kyrios is a ruler, someone who is in authority. In whatever context they are in. Power. Ownership. It means ownership. It's a, the, a master in some form or in relationship with others. Do you follow? That's the meaning of the word. So when we say that, you know, that I, Christ is my Lord, we're saying he, he owns me. He's, he rules over me. He's in authority. I, I operate under his power, not my own strength or my own power. He is my master. That's the idea. Okay. Now, what's interesting, that's the general use of the term. But the Jews had a very specific way of thinking about this word, kurios, this word Lord. Okay. And it goes back, it relates back. What did I do with my... I'm going to scribble here. It, it relates back to the words in the Old Testament that they have for God. You know, the word, uh, I'm going to make that capital, Elohim. Elohim, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Elohim, the word Eloah for God, you know, was pluralized with the him, im. It's, so it was called the plural of majesty. It opens the way for this idea of God is one 
but three. The plural of majesty, Elohim. The word uh, for angels, like the word seraph, is one angel. Seraphim is many angels. Cherub, cherub is one angel. Cherubim is many angels. See, Elo, Eloah, Him, Elohim is it's pluralized. Now, the way in Hebrew that you differentiated the Elohim capital E from the little e, from little e gods, was that is is whenever you find the word for God, the God in the Old Testament, the verbs, all of the you know all of the verbs, adverbs, pronouns, everything around it is singular. Everything is singular around it. The verb will be singular voice. You know what I'm saying? But, but, it will, but it will be the plural of majesty. And you know then to capitalize it. You know, if, if the verb is pluralized, then they're speaking of God, little g. Okay, that's one word for God. Okay? Then the other one, you, and you will recognize this. Y-H-W-H. Hebrew is a... Is a uh, uh, a, a language of consonants, and the way the way vowels were uh, created in the text, the vowels were written underneath the consonants, and so so one of the names for God. This comes from Genesis chapter three. Moses' conversation with God. You remember, Moses is getting instruction from God to go back and tell Pharaoh to let his people go, and he says, "Who am I going to say sent me? They're, they're not going to listen to me." I mean, who am I, who am I going to tell them? You know, who, who are you? And, and God says to Moses there at the burning bush, tell them, I am that I am sent you. Now, we think the word was Yahweh. But we don't know for sure because, you see, after the Jews got the Ten Commandments and they, they were afraid of taking the Lord's name in vain, they dropped the vows. They dropped the vowels out of it and just left the consonants. But when they came to the consonants, they didn't want to read it out loud, even. You follow? So that was one of the names for God. It's the I am that I am, okay? Now, then the other, the third word is this one. It's Adonai. Adonai is simply translates Lord. Adonai, Lord, okay? Now, here's, here's what happens, Okay? Those are the three names for God, but there is a fourth name that you recognize, and that is this one. Jehovah. Jehovah. Jehovah God. Recognize it? Where do we get it? That's our transliteration of what we see in the Hebrew text, you see, because here's what the Hebrew did. The Hebrews, in order to prevent them from, from pronouncing the name of God in vain. They took the consonants of Yahweh and they put the vowels A-O-I underneath it, underneath it, saying so that when the Hebrew read Scripture, they would know to say, Lord. That was their code for say, say Lord, say Adonai there instead of the proper name of God in taking it in vain. Are you with me? So if you take the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai, Aonai, you get Yahweh. 
Jehovah, Jehovah. Okay, and so it combined this idea of the proper name with God, with Lord. And so sometimes you'll see it translated, Lord God. Now, when the Jews, when the Hebrews translated their scripture, you realize they were in crisis because of the dispersion of the Jews and throughout the known world. And they sought to unite themselves in faith. And so they began to translate. They got 70 elders, scholars to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And that translation was called the Septuagint. It was finished sometime around 125 to 130 BC. It was there. It was in effect. It was used in the synagogue schools that everyone grew up with, with every Jewish lad studied the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was studied. Jesus was familiar with it. If Jesus quotes scripture, he often quotes it right out of the Septuagint because that was what was used in the synagogue schools because the synagogues were the, the, that was the teaching place of, to, to educate all of Israel. And, and so you'll, you'll see in the, you know, in the, the Septuagint was generally written as the Roman numerals, LXX, the Septuagint. It was named for the 70 scholars who did the translation. Every time you come to this combination of consonants with the vowels of Adonai, in the Septuagint, it was translated curios, Lord. So for the Jew, that word Lord took on new and very distinctive meaning. Do you get it? It wasn't used in the general sense. It was used in a more specific way. So so a few weeks ago, I'm reading W.E. Vines. The Vines Expository Dictionary on Greek Words. This guy was, is a scholar that is recognized worldwide. Okay, and and listen to what he says. The usage of the word kurios in the New Testament has these two main lines. There's the customary general use, and then there's that use which was peculiar to the Jews, which was drawn out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Christ himself assumed the title early in the Gospels. Apparently intending it in its highest sense. The highest sense of its use with all of the Old Testament associations. His purpose did not become clear to the disciples until after the resurrection And the revelation of his deity consequent thereupon. Thomas, when he realized the significance of the presence of a mortal wound in the body of a living man, immediately joined joined with it the absolute title of deity and said, my Lord and my God. This is Vines saying this. Therefore, therefore, except for two places in the New Testament, in Acts 10, verse 4, 
rolling off the lips of Cornelius when he's praying about a vision that he's had, which you realize Peter shows up later to straighten him out on what's what, okay? And then there's a, a reference in Revelation chapter 7, 14. Except for those two instances, every time the word curios is used in the New Testament, it is used to address God and the Lord Jesus. You hear it? So if it's in there 720 times, 718 times, it's real clear we're talking about my Lord and my God. It took a good while for me to understand that. I had, like Thomas, I had reason to doubt, okay? And so I can identify with Thomas. I distanced myself from religion, from Christianity as I saw it, for two reasons, okay? And I'll just be honest with you. One was hypocrisy, and the other was hormones. Just teenage raging hormones, okay? Here's where the hypocrisy came into my life, okay? Every week, we got up and we went to church. We put on our finest clothes, because that's what you did at the church that we attended. You know, the suits and the ties. And we looked our best, and we walked in, and we acted like everything was super fine with our family. But it was not, because our family was in chaos at home. And my brother was, was, you know, had all kinds of emotional problems. And the symptom was that he was diving into drug dependency, you know, and, 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 and he was being picked up by the law, you know, like almost monthly you know, for some reason, for stealing hubcaps or whatever to support his habit. You know, our family was just in chaos. And yet, we would go to church on Sunday. It was such hypocrisy. I didn't see it working in my family. And I wanted out. My sophomore year, the summer after my freshman year in high school... I went with our church youth group on a mission trip. There were 80 students that went on that trip. Okay? And uh, I was 15, getting ready to hit 16. And, and we came back from the mission trip, and they filled the choir loft. This was a church that had a choir loft. They put all 80 of us into this choir loft for the big return home. You know, let's celebrate the mission trip that we did and everything like that. And the youth director, he got up and had the audacity to say, you know, while we were on the trip, folks, 79 out of 80 students in that choir loft rededicated their life to Jesus. I'm sure that made everybody in the congregation wonder, I wonder who the one was. Let me tell you who the one was. I wanted out. I, I had to do whatever my parents told me to do. I went on the trip. But I wasn't about to rededicate my life one more time, have an emotional experience that was going to be gone in two weeks. Like I saw every other youth going through the motions. So I said, man, for hypocrisy, I want out. So, you know, so the minute I hit my 16th birthday, I got a job at an at a Exxon car care center changing oil, and I volunteered every Sunday to work. Because after all, they had a work ethic in my family, and if you had a job, you, I could get away. I didn't have to go to church anymore. And so I found jobs 
I went from that job the next summer to Six Flags Over Texas, and I volunteered every weekend to work weekends. It's my out. So, so, so one reason was a part. The other one was hormones. A typical adolescent, you know, out there and uh, just experimenting with life, you know. And uh, I thought, you know, wine, woman, and song. That's a that's a pretty good formula for me. And I, you know, I was a guitar player, and I found out, you know, I'm saying that if you could play a little guitar, you can usually get the woman. I mean, it was, it was working for me somehow, you know what I'm saying? So I'm out there, I'm just kind of enjoying my college years and everything, and then, and then things got messy in my life. Things started looking like that diagram, you know, that kind of that messy diagram. Things were chaotic. There was, and I was trying to figure out, you know, how to deal with the stuff that was, you know, coming apart, you know, and, you know, I'm saying I was, I had no sense of purpose, and I was, you know, I wasn't motivated about class, and boy, the relationship thing got really entangled and messy, and I'm saying, just to make a long story short, and I, you know, I'm saying, and for me as a college kid, I always thought that as long as I had, you know, some gal hanging out with me, I was okay, okay. And so I was sort of like I'd kind of been in between for a while. I didn't have, any, and so, so a friend introduced me to this gal at Baylor University, and so I, uh, she was going to be in Fort Worth visiting some friends in Fort Worth for the weekend. So I made a date. One Saturday night, I made a date, and I went and I picked this gal up. You know what I'm saying? But there was something wrong with me. Yeah, I, it just is. It it was everything was just churning. It was just like in chaos in here, you know. And uh, we, we went to a restaurant and 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 we got a little something to eat. And then I just said, "Hey, if you don't mind, I I don't feel well. I think I got a headache." And I just I took her back to her friend's house and dropped her off. And then I just drove all over Fort Worth, Texas, for like hours. I mean, I I, I finally. Finally ended up back at my, you know, my little, you know, rent place, little rent house, about 3 a.m. And I crashed. I, just, I went to bed. I woke up about 9.30 the next morning. And I just sort of stumbled out of bed, and I stumbled into the bathroom. And I put one hand on each side of this, that, that, this old bathroom sink and this old rent house. And I leaned into the mirror and I saw myself. It's like I really saw myself. And this conversation with God sort of started. started. A mental image popped into my brain. It was a, a student by the name of Randy Galloway. I met Randy Galloway one day when I was walking across campus, just spotted a friend of mine standing in a circle of guys. And I went up, you know, to stand next to Steve and Randy. Randy was standing in this circle and was sharing his testimony, his Christian testimony. And Randy was a guy with wounds and scars. Randy had uh, lost both of his arms in an electrical accident. He was a, a journeyman electrician for summer and, and was nearly electrocuted and lucky to be alive, you know what I'm saying? But he had prosthetic arms, and when he'd shake hands with you, he'd kind of do that. And, but here was Randy. He was standing in this circle of guys, and he was just sharing his testimony. And I kind of walked. I was too polite to back away quickly. Like, oh, my God, he's sharing Christ. So I stood there, and I listened to Randy's testimony. And somehow, 
somehow now I'm looking at my, you know, at my face in the mirror and Randy's face just pops into my brain. And I blurted this out, literally just blurted this out. I said, okay, God, if I see Randy Galloway today, I'll tell him what's really going on in my life. I'll tell him how, how screwed up and empty I feel. I see that sort of like what Thomas did. You know, unless I see the nail prints in the hands. You know what I'm saying? I, I, God, I'm giving you like maybe 24 hours, maybe till sundown. And then immediately I kind of felt like, well, you know, I need, to, I need to give God a chance, okay? I can't just sort of hang out at the house. So I decided to take a shower and get cleaned up and go over to the church that was just off campus. There were a lot of college kids that went to this church, okay? And so I took a shower and I headed over to this church just to, to and I'm 30 minutes late. Trust me, the, pa- the pastor of the church is already getting up preaching. I've missed all the preliminary stuff. I'm just saying, I, I just, I walk in the back and there's not even an usher or anything to help you out. I mean, it's just, it was just, but I look in and it's, the place is, is packed. It's full except for three seats on the, on the, on the two rows from the back on the left-hand side. And I thought, oh man, I don't have to walk in front of all these people. This is great. So I went and I sat down. I sat there for about 30 seconds. The door opened and in walked Randy Galloway and came and sat down right next to me. I'm telling the truth. I didn't hear a word the preacher said. I'm saying, but I sense the spirit of God saying, I'm calling your bluff, dude. I mean business, Dave. God got personal in my life for about the next 30 minutes while the preacher was preaching and I heard not a word. I was sweating. I mean, it wasn't that hot, but I'm just saying, you know, I was, by the time that service was over, I was drenched. You know, and of course, Randy Galloway had no idea what was going on with me. And so as soon as the service was over, Randy couldn't put his arm around you. He just kind of nudged me with his plastic shoulder and said hey I'm going to have lunch with you know some students afterwards and stuff like that you know hey it was good to see you I'll I'll check you later and he started off he started walking down toward the front of the church and I literally lunged and grabbed the back of his jacket nearly I nearly drug him down in the aisle and I said no Randy you have to talk to me right now so we went out in the foyer of that church And uh, folks, I don't remember what I prayed, but I'll tell you, it was very close to this. My Lord and my God. That's that's pretty much it. Because when I got up off my knees, there were literally hundreds of people streaming around us. We We were on, you know, it was the, I think they called the place the rotunda of the church. I don't know what that means. You know what I'm saying? But we're just out there in the entryway. And, and I just, I sunk to my knees. And I, I, I literally, I turned my life over to Jesus. He called my bluff. And he got personal, you see. And I challenge people all the time. I do. I challenge people all the time. I, I had a coffee with a young high school kid, you know, even this week. You know, just saying, just talking about, you know, about doubts and fears. And I just encouraged him. Why would you not want to ask God if he's real? Just say, if you're real, get personal in my life. Let me know you're out there. Because I believe he does. That's how my journey started. Just like 
as far as I'm concerned, just like Thomas's. Okay, all right. Let's close here. Which one? Be honest. Don't, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't lie about it, okay? Be honest. Which circle best represents where you are in relationship with Christ? Realize, if you put him at the center today, and you keep every day putting him at the center, things will start making sense. Things will start fitting. You begin to have a sense of purpose. Relationships will begin to experience some growth and some healing. Not without challenge. (laughs) Which circle best represents your life? Okay. Tell that to God. See what he wants to do. Let's pray.